I'm Letitia, and this is Series 3 of the New Leaf Podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. New Leaf interviews working women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to them after having babies, exploring the often huge professional and personal identity shifts that happen when we create the next generation. Our jobs are a really big part of who we are, and we don't stop being who we always were just because we've had a baby. There is such big pressure to be the perfect mummy when actually she doesn't exist, and return to the perfect career when actually that doesn't really exist either. We are all muddling through and figuring it out. By sharing these amazing women's stories, I want to prove to you that motherhood is truly a rebirth in ways we never expect. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we get going though, I've got something special and free lined up for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive fortnightly summary write-up of these episodes with judgment-free motherhood tips and tricks, general musings and interesting articles about all things women straight to your phone doing all the googling so you don't have to. Okay, let's go. Linnea Dunn, writer, editor, podcaster, mother of two and feminist, joins me on series three, episode seven of the New Leaf podcast. Linnea is a Swedish native who's lived full-time in the UK and is now based over in Dublin, Ireland. Besides her incredibly strong and incredibly accurate broad Irish accent, The fact that she's not a native Anglophone is all the more impressive when you consider that Linnea has written two books in English and has several written features for the Irish Independent, opinion pieces for The Guardian and The Irish Times and conducts her podcast Bits of Me in English too. Linnea and I met online when I was a guest on her podcast back in 2021 where I spoke about the pain and politics of breastfeeding. Her episodes are absolutely fascinating and although she's paused it for now, I highly recommend that you check these out. I will link her podcast in the show notes. She and I have a lot in common in terms of enjoying writing that, in her words, fall somewhere between therapy, social commentary and venting, occasionally veering closer to the spewing of pure rage. (laughs) And that, if it's got words in it, I'm probably game. I am already thoroughly looking forward to my first visit to Ireland where I fully plan on several glasses of wine with Linnea. Linnea has also been hugely active in the reproductive rights movement over in Ireland. She immersed herself fully into the campaign for the repeal movement of the Eighth Amendment, a piece of Irish law that was essentially a blanket ban on abortion, stating that the fetus and mother's lives are completely equal. A referendum in 2018 finally resulted in its repeal, marking a huge social and cultural change in Ireland. Northern Ireland eventually followed in 2020. I still cannot quite believe how remarkably recent this is. There are so, so many women globally who are still fighting for this right to choose. Yet, there are also an enormous number of women who are experiencing the chipping away of this choice too. Texas, you know who you are. You're living in very strange times. Linnea's story is particularly relevant to the repeal of this Eighth Amendment. She was faced with an agonising decision when her unborn baby was diagnosed with triploidy at 20 weeks, a rare genetic abnormality where there is an extra set of chromosomes in the fetus's cells. Triploidy pregnancies are usually miscarried early in the pregnancy. 
But if they do survive, they suffer an abundance of life-threatening physical deformities and mental challenges. By the way, I looked these up and there were simply too many to list in this introduction. And these challenges typically result in the infant's death within the first few days of life. Triploidy pregnancies are also more likely to cause life-threatening toxemia and preeclampsia to the mother too. Had she been living in Ireland at the time of her pregnancy, the consequences to her life would have been enormous. Luckily, she was in London, where she experienced excellent advice and medical care from world-renowned fetal medicine specialists who advised her that this pregnancy was incompatible with life for the baby. Linnea chose to undergo a termination for medical reasons, an act that would have made her a criminal in Ireland and Northern Ireland at that time. This is only a small portion of her story, which is absolutely fascinating. This pregnancy expedited some time away from her career and an amazing choice to go back to education and get her master's. Linnea finished her dissertation at nine months pregnant and now has two boys, juggling creative projects, her podcast, her own business as an English language copy agency for Nordic brands, as well as project management and blogging. So this is one impressive lady. Linnea is incredibly inspiring and shares a really brilliant story. For all sorts of reasons, this is one of my proudest episodes to date, and I think you'll see why when you listen. Introducing Linnea Dunn. Welcome, Linnea Dunn. Hi. Hi, hello. Thank you so much for joining me. So I've actually been on Linnea's podcast herself, which is called Bits of Me. So that episode is still out now if you actually want to listen to it. But I realized that I just had to get Linnea on myself anyway, because she's just got such a brilliant story. But I'm just going to start by asking what I ask all my guests, which is where are you in the world right now? And what can you see in front of you? I'm in Dublin in my house, which is a small house in urban Dublin. I'm sitting in our art room slash podcast studio slash music room slash everything that it could possibly be. And I can see Play-Doh and a guitar and a map of Dublin and loads of arts and crafts. It's basically that kind of space. It's like everything crammed into just very little space. <laughs> <laughs> and what I need to ask you is, did you say Plato or Play-Doh? Because these are two very different things. I have nothing uh, philosophical in this space. <laughs> it's Play-Doh. <laughs> I was like, wait, Play-Doh. Oh, amazing. Both equally important. So, okay, tell me then about your immediate family unit. Who is in it? So I live with my husband and our two sons. They are six and eight and go to school and are really musically gifted and absolutely football mad. And my husband is a musician as well and a creative producer and director. So yeah, that's it. That's very cool. So very creative family and also very handy if you are doing podcasts to have somebody who knows a lot about sound, right? Yeah, although... I'm a bit of a control freak, so I've been doing it all myself from the start. I did ask for help, like, okay, just make sure that the things are plugged in. And then I just figured it all out myself. And actually, one of my husband's muso friends taught me all about audio and editing and stuff at the start. Um, so what does your husband play? Well, he, he's a guitarist, a very gifted guitarist. And has, I suppose he's a singer-songwriter and has played that kind of music for a long time. But a little bit of all sorts. 
And how did you guys meet? Well, we did meet at one of his gigs. It's a, it's quite a <laughs> nice story, actually. <laughs> Are you an official it. groupie? Because it sounds yeah. like it. Yeah, totally. We <laughs> met, I randomly went to a gig, one of these acoustic nights in Dublin 15 years ago. Three acts playing, you don't know who they are. We turned up, myself and my Swedish friend, and he went on stage and I said to her, I'm going to marry that guy. And here we are. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm always amazed by these stories. That is insane. I know. I know. I don't, okay. So, <laughs> so many questions. Like, I'm kind of speechless. So yeah, so you said you're a Swedish friend. Obviously you have a very Swedish name. So were you born in Ireland? No, I'm 100% Swedish born and bred. I suppose I have a musical ear and that might have just made my accent a little bit Irish fairly quickly. So when did you come over to Ireland then and and why? I moved when I was 19. It's quite common in Sweden that after you finish secondary school, you take some time out before you go to college or to university. So that's what I did. And I think I just knew I wanted to go somewhere, probably to an English speaking country, improve my English, just work somewhere. And I'd heard good things about Ireland. I had this memory from my childhood when my par- my dad's friends from Ireland came visiting. And I just, it was something that fascinated me. And I went, cool, let's go. As a Swede, you can get work in Dublin. That, that was like at the peak of the Celtic Tigers. There was loads of work, waiting tables and working in cafes. And then, I mean, I guess it worked out for the best because yeah. I mean, you ended up getting two kids and a husband out of it. So thank Thank you, Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit of a long story. My first son was actually born in London, but we ended up back here. So it was it was definitely a good move. Oh, okay, okay. And I feel like we're going to get into all of this. So what did you do work-wise pre-babies? So we were in London at the time and... I was doing a master's and I handed in my dissertation when I was nine months pregnant. But the way that happened was a bit funny, I suppose, that when I first got pregnant, I was working in a full-time job. It was a job that wasn't hugely important to me, but it was a good job and I had nice friends and yeah, it was in the music industry. It was fun, exciting in London, but I was commuting an hour and 15 minutes each way every day. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I got pregnant And I had that kind of hiding the bump in the beginning. And then after the 12 week scan, we started telling people. And then when I was halfway through the pregnancy, we found out that there was a problem with the baby. And so I had to go in and be induced and we lost our first son. So that kind of obviously it was a life changing experience in many ways in terms of my first experience of pregnancy, your expectations of the innocence of that and what it's meant to be. But also, I think for me, it was difficult then because everyone at the the company where I worked knew that I had been pregnant, obviously, and I had to go back not pregnant. And then there was the sense that, okay, so what do I do now? I go back to this job that doesn't mean that much to me, really. And people are just going to wait for me to get pregnant again and go on maternity leave. How is that going to impact on how I feel, Mm. how they look at me? And I suppose that kind of set me off on this journey, I hate that word, but I don't know what else to use, (laughs) of kind of figuring out, okay, what do I want to do for myself? Right now, we're not having a baby and I probably don't want to stay in this job. And so I decided to do a master's. Mm. Mm. So much to unpick already. I can't even imagine what it would be like. People just assume, don't they? You get to the 12-week scan and everything's fine and you think, oh, great. I'll just tell everyone And if you haven't experienced loss or experienced miscarriage or anything like that, it really robs that innocence um, from subsequent pregnancies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I can only speak for myself, but I always felt as though we lost that. So when we got Mm. pregnant again, I 
didn't fully believe that there would be a baby until the baby came out. And there were a lot of of feelings around that that I've had to process afterwards of, of how you feel about the pregnancy and the experience of preparing for the baby and all that. And at the same time, I can only imagine what it's like to go through what we went through when you already have a child. Because I think I don't mean to minimize the loss of somebody who is not yet a parent or who doesn't have a living child. But I think for me, so much of it was just abstract and hypothetical. And at the same time, it's complicated because I look at it now and I know that if our first son, Oliver, had been born when he was meant to be born and had been alive by now, then I wouldn't have my two sons that I have. So I can't wish that away. It's a really strange thing. I can be sad about the experience we had to go through and what that did, but I can't wish that something else had happened because then I wouldn't have the two sons that I have now because I wouldn't have been pregnant again within a few months of him being born. No. So you said halfway through the pregnancy, I'm assuming that something was picked up at the physical anomaly scan. Is that right? So at 20 weeks? Yeah. So yeah, what happened? So we were in the UK and as you probably know, at the 12 week scan, they kind of automatically do that nuchal translucency scan or test Mm -hmm. whatever it is. So when we went in for the first scan, everything was perfect. And Mm -hmm. the tests came back with some ridiculous odds. There's never going to be anything wrong with this baby. So we felt fairly secure in that, I suppose, as you do, because that's what you're told. After 12 weeks, everything's grand. And when we went in at 21 weeks, it was that moment of the sonographer just furiously trying to move the Doppler on my belly and trying to look at different angles and then eventually moving the screen away from us Mm. and just saying, I'm so sorry, I think there might be something wrong with the baby. And so she brought in this fetal, what's it called? Like a fetal specialist. Yeah, something like that. And she said what she could see, which was among other things, spina bifida and a thing called holoprosencephaly, which is that the brain, something to do with water around the brain. It's not the same as hydrocephaly, which is much more common. And a number of other things. And she said, okay, so these things, like it's the heart, it's the brain, it's everything. There is, this baby is not going to live. And eventually, so we went off to see other specialists. We were sent, that was at the Whittington and we were sent to UCH and had other people look at it. And there was the specialist there who was very matter of fact, which I liked. I What you want in that situation isn't emotions and vagueness. You want somebody to tell you exactly what's going to happen because you don't want to be making decisions based on arbitrary kind of guessing or anything. And he recommended that we do one of those amniocentesis when they stick a needle in to take a sample. And he had already said, look, this is not a viable pregnancy. I'm so sorry. And we ended up deciding then that I I just felt I can't, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror I couldn't, like we were on the tube and people are smiling and asking you when the baby is due and Mm. if it's a boy or a girl. I was like, this is not, I can't do this for another potentially four, I don't know, four or five months, just waiting for it to go away on its own. So we went in to be induced and obviously you have to deliver the baby like a normal labour that way. And on the morning when we turned up for me to be induced, that same specialist came running with a big smile on her face and said, it's good news, it's good news, which was very bizarre (laughs) in that situation. I was sitting there crying and I was so scared of going into labour, having not prepared anything and just knowing that there was nothing good Mm -hmm. at the end of it. And she came running and she explained to us that the the results had come back saying that it was a thing called triploidy, 
which explains the all of the other things. It's something to do with an extra chromosome on all the... I, I'm not sure. But why on earth was she saying good news? So she was saying what this means is it's nothing genetic. There's no reason to go and do further testing to check whether there's something in our compatibility, whether it's likely to happen again. She said it's one in 50,000 pregnancies. It's so unlikely that this will happen again. And it means also she was able to confirm if I had stayed pregnant with triploidy, there's a risk that the mother gets really sick as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you weren't just making a decision for your child. It was a decision for you ultimately as well. I mean, mentally and physically. Oh, very much so. Yeah, very Mm. much so. And it's funny, this kind of links in actually to a lot of what happened later in my life. Around this time, some campaigners in Ireland who had similar experiences, including triploidy losses, started organising and becoming more vocal. And there was an article in The Guardian around this time where they were sharing their experience of having to leave Ireland to travel to the UK for abortion. Because obviously what I had was an abortion of a very wanted baby. And I had always been very pro-choice. But I think when I read about that, it there was something in me that kind of I don't know. It was profound. To think that somebody in my situation would be forced to leave the support networks at home would be made to feel as if the care that you need is wrong and shameful and we're going to pretend that it's not happening. That somebody in my situation would go in to see a doctor, get the same news that we got and be told there's nothing we can do for you now. And since being involved with the abortion rights campaign ahead of the referendum after we moved back to Ireland... I've gotten to know other women who had exactly that experience, who had triploidy babies and they were told there's nothing we can do for you now. And they were waiting for the baby to to die in their tummy. It's just so dreadful. And then one of them got really sick. And so they went in to see doctors and her partner said to her, oh, look, if you see half her face drop, call an ambulance. I mean, but the baby, the heartbeat was still there and a baby that wasn't going to live, but a heartbeat and the heartbeat is holy. So the rage levels in me just uh, shot through the roof. It's just so desperately unfair. I I Mm. can't even, I'm I'm slightly at a loss for words because it's just so emotional to hear what you went through and to think that exactly as you say, so many women in Ireland went through. And I cannot even imagine the prospect of continuing to be pregnant and knowing that at any point that will be the end and, Mm. and that's that. And also to go through the physical act of giving birth and all the hormones and everything Mm. that comes with that. Obviously, the later that you leave that, the more intensely physical that Mm. process is. It's just, I feel like it's just a denial of human rights. Well, it is. It absolutely is. No doubt about it. And I mean, abortion is legal here now, but not in any situation. And technically, you're allowed to have an abortion if the pregnancy isn't viable. But... It's very hard to define that for it to tick all the legal boxes because even with a triploidy baby, for example, there is a tiny chance that they might live for a couple of hours. So what does that mean? How do you define a fatal abnormality? There's, there are so many legal hoops to jump through. And then in terms of if you find this out at a certain stage and then you need to get further assistance or testing and wait for this and that, and then eventually it's too late. So you can't travel or there's a global pandemic. So you can't travel. Yes. There, yeah, it's things are a lot better here now than they were a lot better, but far from perfect. But I mean, what year was that? Your loss? 2011. 
I mean, that's 10 years. That is 10 years ago. That's not that long ago. You know what I mean? It's extraordinary to think Mm. that so many women have been through that. And I mean, you're not the first guest that I've had on where I've been talking about Irish issues Mm. in general and obviously how much reproductive rights, etc., are repressed by some of the old institutions there. And that could almost be another podcast in itself. It absolutely um, could, yeah. <laughs> um, I will try not to get started because maternity care on everything, it's definitely another number of podcast episodes. Yeah, yeah. And we actually talked about this, didn't we? Because another one of my followers, if she's listening, hello, Sarah, <laughs> and who pointed out that the fact that the main maternity hospital is going to be partially run or owned by nuns is that right yeah so there's a demonstration about this tomorrow and i mean the church and state have been intertwined here for so long and and actually the catholic church is the biggest non-government provider of healthcare across the globe so this is not unique to ireland but what's specific about this i suppose is that it's a huge public investment into a state-of-the-art maternity hospital which we desperately need but it's going to be built on grounds or on a site owned by the Sisters of Charity, who have also been running the Magdalene Laundries and institutional homes for children. Oh, and for people listening who aren't aware of this, is mother in baby homes in Ireland where babies, well, I don't even know where to start by describing this, but there are an awful lot of bodies of young children that were found historically, but also not that historically in lots of places that were running until unbelievably recently mm. um, as institutions for unwed mothers who were essentially being forced to to give up their children for adoption amongst other pretty horrendous things. So, I mean, this is a big deal, therefore, to have a hospital that's potentially going to be run by a same organisation that was supporting and advocating and running all of these centres. So, yes, I'm intrigued to read your article and I'll make sure that I link that in the show notes as well. So if you want to have a read, anybody who's listening, make sure that you just click into the episode description and you can have a look. So you said you experienced that awful loss of your son, Oliver, and to go through that whole experience must have been so harrowing. People deal with loss in all sorts of different ways. And I've heard previous guests just say that they wanted to just get pregnant as soon as possible to take away from the loss. But then I've also had people say that they wanted to wait as long as possible. So was it a healing process for you to want to get pregnant again? It was, but... When Oliver was born, I had to go in and have a DNC afterwards to get the placenta and everything out. And I remember being given this consent form with all this scary stuff, including this absolutely tiny but still relevant risk that if you have a DNC, something could go wrong and your uterus could be perforated and you might never be able to get pregnant again. Mm. So I was convinced that I would never be able to get pregnant again. So I just wanted to start. And get pregnant and just see basically it was mm. it was more fear than anything else i think or mm. that almost panicked are we ever going to have a baby and it's funny because when i was younger i didn't think i wanted kids i was never extremely broody none of my friends had kids yet but i think after that loss it just becomes it becomes a huge thing and then suddenly that's the only thing you want and that's the only thing you think about So people know that even the two week wait after you think you might have got pregnant can feel like an eternity. It can feel so long. So I mean, to go through essentially a 20 week wait, right? That must have been what it felt like for you second time around, because for you, the 12 week scan probably didn't really mean anything in a way that it really does to people who, again, have that innocence that we talked about. 
Well, it didn't in that we got to see that same specialist from very early on and she gave us scans all the time. She was That's so... amazing. Oh, the care was just incredible. And knowing that she was there and she could go back and look at our 12 week scan from the previous pregnancy and those images didn't say much, but she was able to get other angles this time. And from about eight weeks and then 12 and then 16, she was saying, you're grand. There's nothing here. This is absolutely fine. And look at this. And she was explaining everything and taking all the measurements. So she was really good at reassuring us. So in that sense, I think from about 16 weeks, I probably wasn't as scared going in for the scans. That's so positive that that woman could see you again. That's just incredible. Absolutely. And like, bless the NHS. I love the NHS so much, (laughs) even if there there are aspects of it that, that are a bit grim. So then I suppose we felt reasonably secure, but I definitely can see with hindsight how I didn't really allow myself to fully connect with it and bond with the baby because like we didn't buy a buggy until a few weeks before he was born. We didn't really buy any baby clothes. We didn't build the cot. Why did we build a cot? Who needs a cot? Anyway, we didn't yeah. build the cot until <laughs> like two weeks before he was born. There was no baby in my mind until I mm. held him. It's just, it's mad, isn't it? So you'd ended up going back to work after your loss and then getting pregnant again. But what was the point at which that sort of pivot in your career happened between those two pregnancies? Fairly quickly. So Mm. we lost Oliver in May and I started master's in September. Oh, wow. Um, Okay, very quick. I suppose I always probably wanted to do it. And when I'd been in that full time job, I'd been able to save a bit. So I said, okay, I'm going to take that money and do this master's. And that was that. It just made sense. I don't think I even thought about it that much. I just trusted my gut. And what was your master's in? It was in political communications at Goldsmiths. And having done a master's myself, it's quite an intense, it's not relaxing. So to, <laughs> the, the fact that you handed in your dissertation at nine months pregnant is pretty impressive, I would say. I don't know. I, I just think, and this is going to sound patronising to people who don't have babies, and I don't mean that at all. But for myself, I don't know. Everything seems easy without kids, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know. I probably wouldn't have said that then. That's probably not fair. That's not fair. I love you're, you're being very diplomatic, but everyone who's a mum who's listening is like, yep. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't, but like, I, I loved it. It was really good. There were some really nice people there and the lecturers were great. I got to read about stuff I was really interested in. I got back into freelancing at the same time, writing a bit more. And that was very much a time, I think, when I found my voice a little bit more again or found my way back to oh yeah okay so this is who I am because as a teenager back in Sweden I had contacted the local newspaper and said to them look you don't have any young voices to be relevant you need young writers and I am that writer and I started writing for them and I sometimes wrote about fairly political issues I suppose so at this time doing the masters and blogging a little bit I think I found my way back to that part of me and I guess this is the whole premise of this podcast and why I link it back to work and motherhood. I do think work has this amazing ability, whether it's studying or work, but essentially intellectual stimulation for want of a better description Mm. can just help us refind ourselves after difficult times in a way that pregnancy and motherhood, whatever the outcome can just be so utterly consuming. And it sounds like that's what it did doing that master's. Mm. No, absolutely. That experience had triggered that decision and kind of set me off on a slightly different course, I suppose. Exactly. 
So what happened then? You'd handed in your dissertation and then very due to give birth to your second child. How was that experience going through birth again so quickly after finishing such a massive and amazing intellectual feat? Well, he was a bit late, so so I'd been oh. <laughs> waiting. I'd been waiting a bit. I had a bit of downtime, to be fair. And yeah, I had fall starts and felt like I was never going to go into labour. And I really wanted to go into labour because, again, it was that thing of I was meant to have had a baby already. Mm. It was very different to when I gave birth again with my youngest son when I felt like oh you know I can wait this is grand this is nice but but with my oldest son I definitely I kind of just I was raring to go and I had booked into the birth center which is a place that is meant to be unmedicalized I suppose it's uh, midwife-led care there's a pool there are all these like pilates balls all that kind of stuff so eventually I went into labor didn't really know what to expect even though I'd had contractions previously obviously but like it's very different when when you're number one you're induced and number two the baby's very small um so I went into labor or so I thought anyway after a number of days of on and off contractions and eventually went in and was told in triage that I was four centimeters and I was delighted because I thought it was pretty bad and then we got our suite in the the birth center and the midwife goes sorry, you're not in established labour. And she wanted us to go home, which... Oh, for God's sake. But I know now that's what I should have done. We lived so close to the hospital as well. Like I could walk home and it maybe would have helped. But I was like, I'm not losing this suite because you're really lucky if you get one of those. Yeah, you are. You are. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, I'm not going anywhere. And she went, OK, I'll give you four hours. And <laughs> now this went on for a really long time. And I actually can't remember what happened when. It wasn't a great experience because I just wasn't really able for it. I think I'm quite tense by nature. I don't mean that socially, but <laughs> in my body, I was nervous. I held on to a lot of tension. I didn't do what you're meant to do. I had back labor. The baby was still churning. And then I asked them to break my waters. And the midwife, who was very good, said, look, this is not what you want. This is not what your birth plan says. If I break your waters now, it's very likely that you'll need further intervention. And I said, break my waters. I need to make this happen now. I don't want to go home. And then she did. And I was puking for hours and hours. And then I got into the pool and it was amazing. I loved it. And then the baby's heartbeat went completely crazy. And they rushed me out back into the same room where Oliver was born up in the ward. Oh my God. Yeah. And I said to them when I was on the way up, I said, not that room. And they said, it's the only room we have. We don't have time. Um, And it was so strange. But anyway, he was born with forceps, a episiotomy. There was a lot of blood. I was high on whatever they gave me, a spinal block or something, and profusely thanking them all afterwards when I was high on, on drugs. And he was well and happy and that's fine. And eventually, months later, I found out that the stitching job was a bit dodgy and I had to go back for reconstructive surgery. So that was fun. Oh my God, what a journey. And I mean, so many things. So, I mean, to be in the birthing, I I know that a lot of women listening will be like, yes, once you've got hold of that birthing suite, you do not let Mm. go of it. I've heard a lot of people say that because they're like gold dust. And often there might only be three or four in a really big unit because lots of women choose to labor on the labor wood instead. And of course, that's their choice. 
But if you've really got that kind of midwifery-led care thing in your head and in your birth preferences, it can become a real point of focus and people get really wound up about it. So to to say to yourself, like, I'm not letting go, I think will resonate with a lot of people. But then also to be taken to the same room. I mean, there's so much in our mental state that affects how we give birth, our hormone flow, everything. So, I mean, I can't imagine the stress you must have been going through when they said that. It must have just been awful. Yeah, it was. And it's a memory that has stayed with me. But at the same time, there's just so much going on. Like I've been in labour for I don't know how long. At some point I had asked for pethidine to be able to keep going and I didn't like it. I hated it. I just started puking loads. Like I wasn't really with it and I just wanted something to happen. I didn't understand. I got up to that room and they put my legs in stirrups and they were like, okay, now we're we're all here Mm. and you're going to push on three. And I, I barely even knew what I was doing. It felt like nothing happens when I push. Like clearly he wasn't ready to come out. Like we'd broken the waters too early. He hadn't turned. So yeah, I think, I think I was confused as well. I was like, is this what it's meant to be like? This doesn't seem right. I don't think I know what I'm doing here. And of course I didn't. (laughs) And I suppose like there were like, I don't know how many midwives and doctors there at that point trying to see what they could do without having to do an emergency section. So yeah, like in the birth center, you can't get an epidural and I was never interested in an epidural. I'd had one when when we had Oliver because they told me that I'd need a DNC and to do a DNC, mm. you need to be on you something anyway. Yeah. And then I said, well, sure, you might as well give it to me straight away. But they failed three times and like the pain of having an epidural misfitted twice Mm. was like I just and I didn't like the way it made me feel I'm I don't think I'm great with drugs <laughs> and yeah. so I was like no take me to the birthing suite I want the pool water is mm-hmm. my thing so yeah I hadn't had an epidural and they gave me a spinal block then when we went into theatre to get the forceps out and they were like you have one shot at this like, I don't know how many hands were inside me <laughs> along with the forceps crazy. just twisting and pulling and they're they're like push now you're like how can I push I can't feel my body you've just given me a spinal block I don't know what you're talking about like that part of my body is gone yeah childbirth is surreal it's beautiful right it's a miracle yeah yeah exactly (laughs) serene this is I I wrote a piece before about it because I this is moving on further but I ended up as a result of all of this getting a birth injury and I wrote a piece about it recently where I was talking about exactly that there's this kind of narrative of women are goddesses and we're so amazing in childbirth and our bodies are just and I'm like I didn't feel that (laughs) there was nothing goddessy about me I just felt totally out of control and useless almost and I think your experience I mean obviously I've been following your Instagram account for a while now and the comments that you get from people I mean (laughs) this is a fairly it's a fairly universal experience. I wouldn't say that it is completely universal by any stretch. And, I, and those women who do have the goddess births, that's amazing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you have those. And that's so wonderful. It's also just, yeah, it, it definitely doesn't reflect every single person's experience. No, and I'm lucky that I did go on to have an amazing birth afterwards. So oh, I know that it can be great. And I don't want more kids, but I would do that again if I could. Like, I don't want to be pregnant and give somebody else my baby. That's not what I'm saying. But the (laughs) experience of that labor and that birth was definitely like revenge for me. Yeah, that's so wonderful to be able to have such a good third pregnancy. And we'll come on to that a little bit later on. So to have your son and then need to go back for reconstructive surgery. Obviously, you'd finished your master's. You must have then 
had to, I guess, give yourself some type of maternity leave because you weren't really taking a maternity leave per se, like in a structured way, right? Yeah. So in the UK, you get the statutory maternity pay, which is, you know, (laughs) (laughs) totally enough to live off in London. But yeah, I, I was on that. And I suppose we had accounted for that that's what it was going to be. But I was also, I think maybe as a result of having started to, to get a sense of, oh, I'm finding who who I am and what I work with and what feels good before he was born. I think I was itching to get back to that a little bit. So I started taking on small bits of freelance work fairly early, like when he was just a few months old. And like I'm talking very little, like the odd piece of, that it might take me a couple of hours to do. But so I was doing that and I suppose little by little building up from there. And I guess small babies, everybody responds differently. How did you find that you took to that fourth trimester? In some ways, motherhood probably came fairly naturally to me. I remember a moment when I was sitting at home with him in my arms and he had been really upset and screaming, crying the way a lot of babies do. And he was always like that, the kind of fussy time people call it in the evenings. You oh, know, witching hour. To, exactly. And I'd eventually just put him to the breast and I was sitting there singing a Swedish lullaby to him and he just dozed off and I kind of went, Aww. I think I know how to do this. And... Mm. I don't know. I think there there was a calm in me that I didn't know I had and patience that I didn't know I had. And that just all happened quite naturally. But then at the same time, I could barely sit because of the pain. So I went home with what's called an intermittent catheter, which means that mm-hmm. it was a catheter that I had to empty every three hours. And it's this kind of big, awkward plastic tube stuck to your leg all the time. And if you move, if you sit in a certain way and you move a little bit, that will be pulling at your urethra. And like so much of that, I think it impacted on my experience. I felt as though I wasn't really able to care for him the way I wanted to. Like you picture yourself walking around, carrying Mm. and singing, and I couldn't stand up and hold him at the beginning. Like I could barely sit. So it was a very strange kind of duality there, I think. Obviously, you had an assisted birth and you got to the end of it and they stitched you up. Had they prepared you for having an intermittent catheter and the kind of disability? I don't want to say disability, it's the wrong word, but like how much it would hamper your everyday life. No, not at all. It was the, the postnatal care, like after singing the NHS's praises, the postnatal care was hell on earth. It was like a corridor of horrible 1970s curtains around individual beds and loads of screaming babies and a team of midwives who were just not nice at all. Like I wasn't allowed to go home until I'd emptied my bladder properly, which is obviously standard and that's the way it should be. And So I kept drinking jugs and jugs of water and going to the toilet and showing them, I don't know how much wee is meant to come out. I have no idea what it's meant to look like. I'd show them and they'd be laughing at me. And they were like, oh, you may need to get a bit more out than that. And I was like, how? What do you mean? And I think about 24 hours later, a physiotherapist turned up and just took one look at me and said, oh my God, you're not emptying your bladder. And I had, I don't know how much in there that hadn't been able to come out because my bladder had been traumatized and stopped working. And we just wanted to get out of there. It was awful. There was no space for anyone to be anywhere. And whenever the midwives came in to do something with the baby, they were really rough with him. And, and I think I... When I think about that time, like I I was in so much pain and so confused about the kind of physical and physiological experience that I didn't have him in bed beside me. And I know they probably wouldn't have let me anyway, because there are all these ideas about not being allowed to co-sleep and that. But like now it strikes me as quite strange that I didn't. I don't know. The whole thing 
it was not a nice experience. And you're not the first person to say that actually about postnatal ward and it just being not a particularly pleasant place to be. And I don't want to scare any, any women who are pregnant for the first time who are now freaking out. Of course, this isn't the same for every single hospital. So please be reassured. But I know that absolutely reflected my experience for sure, that it and was very honest, much cubicle <coughs> care, curtains and get you out as quickly as possible with as minimal intervention as possible. Yeah. And to be honest, I think that this is a tricky thing because I wish I'd known that. Like yeah. I was told afterwards that, oh no, but like the NHS is known for being really good when it comes to childbirth in a number of different ways. But postnatal is not its strength because that's not where they put the resources, which is probably the right priority. But it's this thing of we're not meant to talk about negative experiences because other people will feel yeah. nervous and anxious and put off. But actually, is it not better to have the information and be able to mentally prepare yourself that it might not be perfect? It mm. might be tough. And OK, so how am I going to prepare for that? Who mm. is there to maybe come in and support me? What might I need if that is the case? And then you might be positively surprised and that's great. But mm. Yeah, I don't think we need to patronise people and go, oh, it's going to be amazing. And then people go in and they're let down. Yeah, and you're so right, Lynette. And this is something that the guests have brought up with me thousands and thousands of times. Like I read a fabulous book by one of my previous guests, Jessica Hatchamore, and it's all about the postnatal period. And she said that, that she quotes a bloke who was writing about fatherhood. And he said, I always thought that the idea that the moon landing could be faked was so ridiculous because of the sheer number of people that would have to remain silent for it to be kept a secret until my wife gave birth. And then I realized that the silence around how childbirths can be mm. is just completely not talked about. Mm. And it's true for a lot of people. So, mm. I mean, it's just you're right. We, we have to talk about it more. And then, as you say, if it's positive experience, then brilliant. And that's mm. fantastic. And people do have positive experiences. Of course they do. But there are also lots of people that don't. And actually, it, it can't improve unless we talk about it. If we pretend that everything's fine, there's nothing to fix, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. When did you actually manage to leave the hospital and what happened next? I was there for, I think, four or five days. And I was under the care of a urologist who <laughs> was very strange. Um, <laughs> Why? Uh, oh, I don't know. It was a very bizarre experience. All of the, that kind of postnatal experience, it was just weird. And we'd go in and I was exclusively breastfeeding. And so if I was in distress, the baby would know and he would scream. And I was there with her trying to fiddle around with my urethra and try things and make me insert and take out things and then go to the toilet and then come back. And it's not what you want to be doing when you have a baby who's just a few weeks old, who is exclusively breastfed. So yeah, that was a bit strange. Eventually it all worked out. It was fine. I was left with a bit of a sense of kind of bearing down heaviness, I suppose, which I was told would go away. I think it's very normal if you consider what you've been through, but then it didn't. And so when the midwives came and did home visits to check things, like they checked the baby, but they don't really check you, do you know? No, so I was there going, oh, would you mind just, are the stitches okay? Because I was so nervous about the stitches and like how you're meant to look after them or not. And what it's messy, like after an episiotomy and a really traumatic forceps birth where I'd lost loads and loads of blood and they're meant to be stitching things up. And she would kind of glance over and go, ah, it looks fine. It's great. Yeah, you're doing fine. And it wasn't mm -hmm. fine. So eventually I think I went to the GP 
two or three times before she checked and went, you know what, something is in the wrong place or whatever it was. I'm going to refer you to get fixed. And they referred me to the private hospital around the corner. And I don't know why they did that. If that was because they thought I didn't want to go back to the same place or something else. But anyway, it was like that was all on the NHS as well. So that was fine. (laughs) And I remember going in and your mom was like, would you like me to make it a bit tighter while I'm there? (laughs) (laughs) Just like, no, fuck off. (laughs) Honestly, it was just like, are you for real? Wait, they said that. The surgeon, yeah. Pardon? Mm. I mean, he was a plastic surgeon, so I don't know what kind of labia, plastic, whatever stuff he does normally. He was I great. Thought was, I thought that was like a myth, like the husband stitch or whatever I know. they call it. No, it's not a myth. What? And oh my God, mind blown. Yeah, that was so bizarre. But, you know, it. he was good. And he, when I came back for the checkup <laughs> oh afterwards, and he did, he was like, well, I do a smear while while I'm checking things and he did and I was so scared and it was totally fine and like the relief of going oh my god that bit of my body is working it's not like absolutely destroyed so it was the end of that for then anyway. That's crazy so how long after your birth did you finally get that reconstructive surgery? Four months later I had the surgery and after that Four you know, months. I was a bit a long sore. Time. Yeah I was a bit sore afterwards and taking it easy I suppose but it was I felt almost straight away that, oh yeah, this is better. This is problem solved. So four months, you finally get the reconstructive surgery. And then you had obviously been doing like the odd piece of freelance work, but did you get fully back into work before you had your last child or how did that all work? I was writing for a few different clients and publications and I was working for a little bit just temporarily with a a media reform campaign that was related to the university where I'd done my master's. And then a magazine that I was writing for asked me if I wanted to come on board as their editor. And they said that the editor's job was a part-time job for this particular publication, a monthly magazine of about 140 pages every month. And so I said, yeah, cool, great. And I started that when my son was one and it was a really good experience in a lot of ways. It wasn't a part-time job and it should have been paid a lot more and it was stressful at times, but it meant that I could work a lot from home. It meant that I learned more about my skills as an editor, managing teams online and working with freelance writers and and writing a lot myself. So that was a really good experience. And then when did pregnancy number three happen? So that happened, I suppose I got pregnant fairly quickly after I started that job because there's two years between my sons. So we both knew that we wanted another child if we could. And we also knew that that was probably going to be it. And I felt like with freelance work, it's quite hard to, like if you build it up and then you go, oh no, I'm not available anymore. Then you almost have to start from scratch. Mm. And we felt it just made sense. And around this time, so we were still in London, but we had been talking about a move for a very long time because we had family in Ireland and in Sweden and we could just about afford a shed in London (laughs) because house prices (laughs) are hilarious in London. So we eventually decided we were moving to Ireland, which meant that I was telling the magazine, do you know what? I'm pregnant and also I'm leaving the country. Can I keep my job? Amazingly, they said, yeah, cool. As long as you get the work done, we don't care. So that was it. And we moved And I had to transfer maternity care from one place to another and realised that I was entering a country where the birth of my firstborn was illegal in their eyes. Mm. And I was bringing that with me, which was a strange experience. And at that point, I knew we're moving to Ireland and I'm getting involved in the reproductive rights kind of movement. I knew that was part of the plan all along. And I was six months pregnant uh, when we moved. 
And did you feel that judgment from the maternity services in Ireland about your medical history? No, I didn't. I was nervous about it when I went for my, I suppose, a belated booking in appointment with the new system. The way you fill out forms and they're asking how many pregnancies and how many births. And I just didn't know what to tick. And I didn't know, okay, so so does that does that birth have medical importance? Do I need to share that? And I didn't know, so I did. And the midwife looked at me and went, okay, so you have two little children at home. And I said, no, I only have one. And <laughs> there was that moment of, like, I felt upset and tense and she was just really kind and sweet. And I know there are things she probably couldn't say or she would have been incriminating herself. But no, they, I didn't feel that judgment from the medical profession at all. That's one really positive thing then. Mm. So to transfer maternity care and particularly as you are Swedish native, then having giving birth in a completely different cultural environment, but then Irish culture is different from British culture as well. That must have been quite an experience and so amazing to get involved with the reproductive rights movement. So how did that all get you to bits of me and where you are now? I think it was a different experience for me in so many ways because I kind of knew what I wanted, both in in terms of the birth and in terms of where I was at with what I wanted to do and who I was. The maternity care system here is different, but I was just so much better able to advocate for myself. And there were some complications with the baby being transfers and I had to be hospitalized for a few days around 38 weeks or something. But eventually I got the birth that I wanted and he was born in the pool and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. It was probably like knowing what I know, theoretically, it was probably a pushing stage that was too long. And I probably didn't have a very good pushing technique, but (laughs) it was just, it was what I wanted. And I was let do what I wanted to do. The midwives were, were very passive. They were there all the time. And when they really had to, they tried to check things, but I was very much let just labor the way Mm. I wanted to. And I was in the pool for hours and he was born in the pool. Yeah, it was a really good experience. I'd been told beforehand that because of what happened with my traumatized bladder the first time, I needed a catheter straight away to give the bladder a rest immediately after birth and then let it do its thing. But when I told the midwives that, they went, oh no, should we wait? And then the same thing happened again. And that Uh. was, yeah, I spent five days in the hospital in what was a very stressful attempt to learn to self-catheterize, which means every time you go through the toilet, you need to insert a tube. Oh my God. Yeah. And like to do that and picture yourself at home with a toddler and a newborn baby, like it's hard to go to the toilet as it is in that situation. So yeah, yeah, that was awful. And eventually, thankfully, my bladder just caught on to it and went, oh, this is what what we need to do. And I was allowed (laughs) to go home and it was fine. I was in the situation where we come back to Ireland. I didn't really have any friends here. And I suppose like when you have small kids, you're in a new place. We were renting a house in an area where we didn't know if we were going to stay. The obvious thing for me to do was to find people online. So I found before the birth, birthing and breastfeeding and pregnancy groups where I could get advice on the system here. And that then eventually led to me finding a community of people who were campaigning as parents for reproductive rights. So I made a lot of virtual friends very quickly who became a big part of my life for a number of years then because that was, so he was born in 2016 and the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment was in 2018. And that campaign was a huge part of my life then for a couple of years. It's so amazing that that ability to make virtual friends now exists like for mums because it can just be such a lonely time, but let alone moving to a new place and how amazing to get involved in something that's such a good cause. But 2018, that's just so recent. I can't even wrap my head around it. Mm. Yeah, I know. So 
How did that get you to the podcast? I suppose there's always been that slightly political theme in everything I've done or in most things I've done. And the repeal campaign and that whole scene brought me right into that. And I was writing a little bit about that at the time, but I was also at the same time just keeping down this editing gig that I had of a magazine about Scandinavian culture. So that was great. It was an opportunity for me to do, to have a paid job, to still have a bit of flexibility to spend more time with the kids and then to be quite active as a campaigner. And then the referendum happened in May 2018. Everyone was absolutely exhausted. I think everyone is still burnt out. And in January 2019, I realised that I had a prolapse. So I had been, I'd been building up running again, getting back to running and I was absolutely loving it. And then I'd been getting increasing lower back pain and a bit of pelvic heaviness again. And eventually my bladder stopped working and wouldn't empty. And I went to a GP and a physio. It's a long story in and of itself. But what happened was like, I, I knew instinctively straight away. I was like, oh shit, that's what's happened. And I was really upset and low about it because there is a lot that can be done to help you live a good life, but the surgical options aren't great. A lot of people struggle to get back to proper training and exercise. Not Maybe not a lot of people, that's not fair, but it, it's difficult. And for a lot of people, it gets significantly worse when you enter menopause. So that was all mm-hmm. ahead of me. And I was, just, I felt a bit like this is not what my body was meant to do. And I also felt like when I started reading about it, I realized, oh, actually I take all the boxes. I'm very much in the kind of high risk category here of having had a very big baby with a forceps birth and a episiotomy. And also the fact that I wasn't very young when I had that baby, even though I wasn't ancient at all. But yeah, and I'd never been to see a pelvic floor physio. And I felt like, okay, why has this not been mentioned to me? Mm. And I saw the statistics that up to 50% of women who have given birth have a prolapse. Some don't know about it yet because they, have, they don't get symptoms until they get symptoms. Menopause. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But Again, I just thought, why don't I know about that? There must be loads of people around me who are living with this. And so my own journey of getting care aside, I suppose that kind of fueled that side of me again. The personal is political and having to politicize everything I experience and go, why does it feel like this? Why are we not talking about it? Why is there no appropriate care? Why has the funding and research been so limited? And it took me a while. I started writing about it because I always write to make sense of the world. And then I just felt that I needed to talk to other people. And there was something about a podcast format that really appealed to me. It's been very time consuming, as you know. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes. She sighs. But overall, it's been a really positive experience. I've had such amazing feedback. And I think it's helped me as well to figure out where I'm placing myself with my other work because I'm finding myself doing more freelance writing again now. And the women's health side of things is becoming an obvious space for me. It's something that suddenly I know a lot about and I'm really passionate about and I have contacts and that's all fallen into place in a Mm. strange way. And so yeah, I don't know for how long I will continue with bits of me. I don't know how sustainable it is. But whatever happens, I'm really proud of the project and what I and other women together have done with it. I'm also very politically minded and also quite a big 
campaigner slash I won't shut up about something if I get, yeah. you know, if I get, if I get the bit between my teeth, I'm a bit of a bull terrier. I don't really stop uh, until <laughs> something happens. Um, so I definitely feel a certain amount of kindred spirit there. And I think there mm. is a wave of postnatal just revolution coming mm. where people are like, this is crap. Like we need to do something about this. And I think that Bits of Me is just such a great example of, yeah, I guess a media that's trying to put women's health issues first, because as you said, it's not just about pregnancy and birth, etc. It's about why do we not have the right data on women's health issues? Why do we have a medical system that's so structurally sexist, mm. unfortunately? And mm. these are all huge topics. And it's funny because so many of us in this field have been banging on about this for a long time and saying, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about this? So in a lot of ways, actually, we're not accepting it anymore. Mm. I think what the problem is, is more the fact that has to be allowed to make an impact Absolutely. so that there is more funding, so that more research is done and more things improve. And also when you talk about grief, people can relate and feel sorry for you. And mm. to an extent, certain aspects of menopause we can talk about. But when we talk about, for example, birth injuries, it's complicated because we need to maintain this idea of birth as something safe and almost holy and beautiful. And the idea that women sustain lifelong injuries from giving birth doesn't fit with that narrative. And it's a problem for us. We don't know where to put it. And so I think for me, that's becoming something that I'm particularly passionate about at the moment, mm -hmm. because it feels like it's kind of what, what, if, what about the women who can't have penetrative sex and their marriages fall apart? What about the women who have faecal incontinence and they can't go anywhere without pooing themselves? Mm. It's not pretty and it, it's hard to put it in a cute little box and go, oh, we've talked about that now and it's okay to talk about it because it's not, it's never going to be something that you, you go and talk about in the pub with somebody mm. you've just met. It doesn't need to be that, but it needs to be something that we can talk about enough that something changes. Because mm. women's bodies have been under-researched for so long. It is shocking that as a man, you can get what's it called Viagra over the counter. But as a woman, you can't even get your menopause stuff without a prescription. You can't even Th get the pill over the counter. Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I think more and more women as well are going into these fields of research. So hopefully we'll see change mm. soon enough in our lifetime. I mean, what a note to end on. And I was just like furiously nodding as you were speaking, because I think that point you made about how can we marry those two concepts, which is we need to preserve birth in its sort of naturalness and holiness almost, but also without ignoring the very stark reality. And we don't quite know how to manage that yet. And mm. I, I don't know either. It's really hard. I think it, women as well as men really struggle with that. And I think it's a really important point to raise because we can't fix it without talking about it. So I think everybody should watch this space because you're certainly not going to see the last of the name, what you've been doing. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was wonderful to get to go on my soapbox for a bit. <laughs> oh, anything that you want to shout about in terms of websites, your handle, etc. before you go, just so that people know where to find you? Well, it's my name everywhere. So Linnea Dunn, that's L-I-N-N-E-A-D-U-N-N-E. -N -N -E. That's the LinneaDunn.com, my website and blog. And it's me on Instagram, Twitter. That's pretty much it, really. Bits of me is on all the podcast platforms and there are links to it from all my profiles and the website as well. 
Amazing. And of course, click into my profile if you want to get straight to Linnea stuff and her page, etc. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes as well. So thank you so much. Thanks a million. Well, you made it to the end. Enjoyed it? Let me know on Instagram or Twitter or better yet, drop me a rating on iTunes. Have a lovely day. And if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody. 